guys can have a seat. Amen. Thanks for leading us, Mark. Church, aren't you grateful for that guy? Yeah. The whole team. Well, have you ever really wanted to see a performer live, a band in concert? Maybe it was your favorite sports team. How far would you go to get tickets to see your favorite? For those of you who were younger, back in the day, before the internet allowed us just to buy tickets with the click of a button, you actually had to go to a place called a ticket office to purchase your tickets. And back in the day, the most dedicated fans would go, and they would camp out in front of that physical ticket office, sometimes for days, sometimes obviously overnight, in the rain, in the cold, waiting for a chance to purchase tickets in hopes that they might get the best seats in the house to see their favorite musician or band or performer. And a few years ago, there were some students down in Brazil, a group of girls in Brazil, who actually camped out for several weeks hoping to see Taylor Swift in concert. Any Swifties in the house? Any? Yeah, we got a few of you. So uh, they were hoping to see Taylor Swift. And I've heard she's a phenomenal performer, but they had camped out in front of the entrance to the stadium. And the kicker? The show was already sold out and they did not have tickets. They were just hoping on some crazy chance that they might still be able to get into the stadium. But they said, even if we don't get in, we just want to listen to her music. We will be content to hear the live show from right here at the entrance to the stadium. I don't know about you. That sounds pretty crazy to me. There's not a lot of shows in the world that I would go to that length to see. But today, we are going to hear about some guys who got pretty creative to get their buddy in the presence of someone special. We begin week 23 in our series, Quest 52. We're in a mini-series of Quest 52 uh, called Signs, where we're taking a look at some of the miraculous signs that Jesus performed to demonstrate his divine authority. But this year, we are making our way through Quest 52, a book by uh, author and speaker, uh, pastor, and Bible college professor, Mark Moore. And Mark wrote this not so that we would use this instead of the Bible, but to help us navigate our way through the Gospels in the Bible to get us into God's Word. Not so we'd just have more information about Jesus, but so that we could actually get to know Jesus. And so that's what we're doing. I've heard so many good things from so many of you who have a appreciated what Quest 52 is allowing you to do to connect with God this year. If you don't yet have a copy of this, we have some available for purchase out in the lobby at a very discounted cost. You can pick yours up on the way out today, get one, share with a friend. But we are in week 23, and today we begin uh, in Mark chapter 2. So you can go ahead and open to your digital Bible or your physical Bible. If you don't have one, you can use one from the uh, seat back in front of you. Or obviously it's up here on the screen. You just follow us along here. Well, Mark chapter 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. Now Jesus had just returned from being on another ministry assignment where he had healed a man who had leprosy. And he told this man, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. 
But that dude told everyone what Jesus did for him. And no blame or shame to that guy. We probably would have done the same thing. Had we had leprosy at that time and then somebody healed us, we would have gone from being a social outcast to getting back into the social circle. We probably would have wanted to jump into the social circle, tell everybody why it was okay for us to be back and who healed us. And that's what that guy did. But because of that, Mark ends chapter 1 by telling us that Jesus had a difficult time going into the towns and villages because the word had spread, and he was sworn by people. It was the first century version of the paparazzi and the mega fan club. So everywhere Jesus went, he was swarmed by people. And there he is in this house teaching. It's packed with visitors, and he's swarmed by the fans. So let's consider who was present in that house that day. Well, first off, you would have had the, the critics, the ultra-religious critiquers, the ones who knew they had all the answers to religion, that their method of doing things, that their religious system was the only way and the only right way to do it. They thought they had all the answers. And you would have had the skeptics, people who had heard about Jesus, but they weren't sure if all they had heard were true. You had the curious people who had heard the hype, and they just wanted to know, who is this Jesus guy? You had the people who showed up expectantly. They were hoping to see something marvelous, something miraculous from Jesus, or at least hear some really good teaching. And then you had the druggies. That was me when I was just a little kid. My mama drugged me to church every Sunday with her. And some of you, you were drugged here today. You've been dragged to church by a spouse, by a friend, by a kid, by a parent. But for whatever reason, you came and you're here, and I commend you for that. So even if you got dragged here today, thanks for being here, and we are glad you came. And at that point, you had all those different people who, for whatever reason they were there, they were there, and they were packing the house, and they were eager to hear from Jesus. And while Jesus was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above Jesus' head. Because that's what you do. You can't get into where you want to go. You just break through the roof. That's a legit thing. Well, let's understand that back in those days, these homes in the first century Jewish villages where these people lived, you'd often have a courtyard surrounded by other rooms. Some of those rooms were a kitchen. Sometimes it was like a barn room where some animals stayed. Sometimes it was storage. Usually the bedrooms were maybe in a loft kind of up above. But over all of that space in the house, you had a thick thatched roof. It was a hard thatch made of mud and sticks and straw and grass. And most of those homes had a staircase or at least a ladder that led up to the roof on the outside. The roof served as another outdoor living space. Today we have these hip cool places where they have the upstairs patio seating, the rooftop patio. That was just normal in those homes at that time. So let's enter into that scene. Let's put ourselves there in that setting where Jesus is teaching. There we would be standing shoulder to shoulder, everybody leaning in, trying to hear what Jesus is teaching. You're peeking over the people in front of you, trying to get a sightline to him, looking between the heads in front of you. And Jesus is teaching and, and people are packed in and suddenly you hear a commotion up on the roof. You hear something rumbling going on up there. 
Well, Jesus speaks a little louder to get the attention to override the distraction on the roof. But then dirt debris start falling from the ceiling onto the people sitting right there at his feet. Aren't you guys glad that dirt and debris isn't falling on you? You thought you got the good seats. And so they're sitting at Jesus' feet. Stuff starts falling. Everybody's kind of distracted. Jesus pauses a little bit, keeps teaching. And then there's a small hole that you know, happens through the ceiling and the sunlight, because it's a dim room, the sunlight bursts through and it's kind of blinding and you know, distraction. Jesus is trying to teach, but he's recognizing the distraction. Next thing you know, there's a fist that comes busting through that hole, grabs the side of the, the ceiling and pulls back a section of roof. The sunlight comes in. Your eyes have been acclimated to the dim light. Suddenly it's bright. Everybody's like, whoa, Jesus just stops teaching at that point because the distraction's too much. Then this dude appears. He's kind of hidden by the sunlight behind but you see he's dirty he's sweaty he's got a big grin on his face he's looking through the window through that hole in the, i mean it's a new window it's like a sunroof right like yeah he's looking through that face disappears everybody's wondering what's going on and then they lower their paralyzed friend on a mat right down in front of jesus and you recognize this guy he lives just a few streets over you've seen him before you've heard him You've heard him begging at the market. He's paralyzed, and so he can't provide for himself, for his family. You've heard him asking others for provision to help them out. And then Jesus, seeing their faith, their faith, not just the faith of this man, but the faith of his friends. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now that sounds like really good news, but put yourself in the place of one of those guys up on the roof. Wait, 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 sin's forgiven. Hey, Jesus, that's great and all, but kind of hoping for a miracle today. Like we host this dude from the other side of town. We just busted through a roof. I'm pretty tired. We're hoping not to have to carry him home. How about a healing? Like thanks for the forgiveness, but how about a healing today? You know, is this guy who's there, he's like, really? Forgiveness? Thanks. Anything else? Friend, how are you when things don't go the way you planned? When your expectations are not met? When you're hoping for one thing and then something totally different happens? When you made plans and then somebody else changes those plans, maybe even at the last minute? When things don't go the way you expected, how do you handle that? Well, if you're like most people, we measure the distance between expectation and reality, either in degrees of delight or disappointment. Got a graphic to illustrate this. If this is our expectation and then reality shows up better than what we expect, we measure that with delight. Several weeks ago, my wife and I took our second child, Lydia, our second daughter, we took her on a campus visit to a Bible college to see if that might be the place she wants to go to college. And we brought her younger brother, who's a freshman, along with us. Now, he was not too excited to go. Why do I have to go? I'm a freshman. I'm not going to college yet. I don't even consider that college. Why do I have to go? Because dad said you have to go. That's why you're going. So (laughs) all the dads in the room know that's real. So about halfway through this campus visit, as we were walking through the very nice, updated, incredible athletic complex and the inside gyms and the weight room, and we're seeing all of those things, Ethan turned to me and kind of hesitantly said, you know, maybe I could 
kind of see myself at this Bible college. Maybe it wasn't so bad after all. What he expected came in below reality and he had some delight in his heart. But when expectation is beyond reality, we're left with disappointment. Several years ago, some friends of ours ordered a backyard inflatable pool complete with this whole play set thing for their kids. The package showed this. This was the picture on the box. And they were super excited to get this thing home and to inflate this thing and fill it with water. And when they did, it turned out like this. Now, I know it's kind of fuzzy. You can't quite see the faces on those kids, but... Just by their posture, do you think that was degrees of delight or disappointment? This is why I tell my wife all the time, sweetie, if you will just lower your expectations of me, you'll minimize a whole lot of disappointment in your life. (laughs) Now, the reality is that's what those guys were feeling that day, right? I mean, how would you feel if you were that paralyzed man who was hoping to walk out of that home and all you heard was your sins are forgiven? Where there'd probably be some gratitude, but also some confusion, probably a little disappointment. Those guys who carried him there didn't want to carry him home. That guy wanted to walk home on his own two feet. But what he thought he needed was not actually what he most needed. And that's true for us also. So often what we think we need might not be our greatest need. Well, some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there that day when Jesus was teaching, they thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. No one but God can forgive sins. And they're not wrong. Only God can forgive sins. But those angry critiquers thought they had it all figured out. Now, we need to understand that in the Jewish culture of that time, forgiveness of sin was a massive deal. It still is. But then it was fraught with law and rules and regulations and tradition. Getting your sins forgiven was costly. It was time-consuming. You had to bring a sheep, and not just any old sheep, not the worst sheep. You had to bring the best sheep, the one without blemish. If you didn't own a sheep, you had to buy a sheep. If you couldn't afford a sheep, you had to buy a pigeon. And then you had to go to the temple and make your way to the temple. Then you had to stand in line to wait to see the priest. When you finally saw the priest, you had to give the animal to him and then tell him all the sins you needed forgiven of. And then the priest would go and he would sacrifice that animal on your behalf. For your forgiveness. And the problem with that is that's all retrospective. That's for the sins you had already committed. But then as you would continue to commit more sins, you'd have to come back and repeat that ritual. This forgiveness ritual happening again and again, time and time after time for you to be forgiven. It was costly. And it was challenging. Now the priest could offer the sacrifice on behalf of anyone, but only God could offer the forgiveness to anyone. No one but God can forgive sins. Those religious leaders were not wrong. So they're thinking, how can Jesus claim to forgive sins? What right does he have? Who is this guy? When I was in high school, I lived out in the country, and so we would venture into the city. And I was traveling from the city to get back home one night. 
I was 16, I think, maybe 17. And I was traveling on one of the, the busier streets in the town. And I glanced down for just a moment to adjust the radio, maybe. And I glanced up just in time to see the brake lights of the car in front of me go bright. A little more honest. I glanced up almost in time <laughs> to see those brake lights. The car in front of me, that two-week off-the-lot, nearly new, beautiful sports car, nosed down to prevent running into the jerk who had pulled out in front of her. And I hit my brakes and my car nosed down, but like one dog sniffing another, my front end sniffed her tailpipes. And I stepped out, I assessed the damage. It looked a lot worse for my car than it did for hers. When Jesus told that man, your sins are forgiven, it would have been like somebody coming up to me off the sidewalk that day and saying, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. All this damage, it's forgiven. That mistake you made, it's forgiven. Hey, the wrongdoing that you caused by hitting that car and creating all this damage and stopping traffic on one of the busiest streets at the worst time of day, that's all forgiven. And I would have probably been like, hey, thanks. Who are you? What gives you the right? And by the way, are you going to fix my car and hers too? I mean, that's the situation that was here, right? Like, who is this Jesus guy? Does he have the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus knew immediately what these men were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? And so I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, son of man is a title from the Old Testament prophets referring to the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one God would send to rescue his people from their sins. And so Jesus is here claiming that title for himself, claiming to be the one, claiming to be the chosen one of God. And so this is a statement of authority. Well, Jesus asked that question. He makes that statement. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Well, the man jumped up, obviously, right? He's not just going to stand. He jumps up. He grabbed his mat, and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we had never seen anything like this before. Now, how do you think that man walked out of that room? Then he jumped up, grabbed his mat, was like, all right, I'm going home. No, you know, that guy walked out. He's doing the happy dance. He's like, oh, man, I'm walking again. Here we go. Woo. You know, he's like, woo, I'm excited. Here we go, baby. We're walking out of this place. The crowd parts. He's doing the happy dance on his way out. Just like we should when we realize what God has done for us. There should be joy. There should be excitement. There should be a jump up with just gratitude in our hearts for what God has done for us. Now, the Jewish people of that time, though, they believed that sickness, if one were sick, that that sickness was a divine punishment from God, either for that person's sin or the sin of that person's parents. Now, God makes it clear all the way through the scriptures, all the way through the Bible, that while that is sometimes the case, that is not always the case. In fact, it's not even most often the case. That our sickness, our sin can be a direct result of our sin. But it's not always that. We live in a fallen, broken world, broken by sin, but not only our own, the sin of all humanity throughout all time. We live in a world where sickness and death happen. 
And so we can't always draw the straight line, oh, you have this sickness because you have offended God. It's not always retribution like that. And, and most of the times that Jesus confronts that issue, he upends it. He says, it's not always like that. But this time is an exception where Jesus leverages that belief for his own good to show that the sign he is showing is his power to demonstrate that he is God. He effectively says, if this sickness were caused by sin and I have the ability to undo the consequence of that sin, then that also gives me the authority to forgive that sin. Now, all those people were way more concerned about this guy's physical problem, but Jesus was concerned about the man's spiritual problem. And the reason is because what we think we need might not be our greatest need. That man thought he needed to walk, but that was not his greatest need. Friend, often we come to God with what we want the most, with what we think we need the most, but oftentimes it's not what is most needed in our lives. What would be on the top of your list of the things that you most need? Well, recently some researchers asked a whole lot of people that question. And unsurprisingly, at the top of the list was health. We often take it for granted until it is taken away. But when someone you love gets sick, when you yourself get sick, when that significant diagnosis comes, we will do whatever it takes to pay for the cure, to find the cure, to get better. We will lower our, our way of living so that we can, in chance, help that other person to go on living. And so health is seen by most people as their greatest need. But right below that is resources. Having enough money, having enough resources to cover our needs. But if we're honest, we don't want to just cover our needs We want enough resources to take care of at least a few of the things we want. Years ago, billionaire Warren Buffett was asked, how much is enough? How much money do you really need? His response, one more dollar. Always just one dollar more. Now, we don't have to be a billionaire to think that we need more money. Obviously, the billionaire, does he really think he needs more money? Well, He's made a lot more money since that time. So sometimes our resources, what we think we need, might not actually be our greatest need. Right below that is companionship. Funny that resources ranked above companionship in the study. But knowing that we need somebody. Recently, there was a study done that showed that almost half of the people living in the United States, almost half, say they struggle with loneliness regularly and that when they struggle with loneliness it is intense and unbearable that nearly half the people in our country have intense unbearable loneliness regularly well friend companionship is a need we were created to do life with others we were created for connection created to be in community with one another we were created to have the right people in our lives breathing life into us. That's God's design. That's part of the beauty, the genius of the design of the church that we're to do life together. This is why if you're just going through life alone, if you're just reading Quest 52 and you're not talking about it with another person, if you don't have community in your life, you're missing out 
That's part of the reason why here at OCC, we are so big on small groups that we know you need people to journey through life with. You need spiritual friendship. And if you're not connected in that way, if you don't have spiritual friendships, then stop by our next step area after the service and we will help you get connected. Well, right after companionship comes recognition. But recognition as it showed up on the survey was different than what we might often think. It was really the desire to know that our life matters, that there is meaning and purpose to what we are doing and that it is benefiting someone else, that we are known, that we are loved and we are appreciated for our life's work. Now, each of these is a pressing need. Each of these is a significant need, but none of these are your greatest need. And that doesn't minimize them. We need all these things. But more than all these things, our greatest need is to be forgiven by God. Our greatest need is to have fellowship with God, to be made right with God. Friend, do you realize that that is your greatest need? Do you admit that you're a sinner who needs forgiven? You know, we don't know the sins of the guy who was paralyzed there. We don't know if there was some big headline news article kind of sin issue in his life, or if he was just more of the regular, average, everyday sinner like many of us. But either way, it doesn't matter. Because all sin is significant. All sin wrecks relationship. It breaks relationship between us and God. It wrecks relationship with other people in our lives. It wrecks us. All of it. That simple lie you told, that's sin. It needs forgiven. That angry outburst, well, that only happens sometimes. Well, you still need forgiven in those times. That's sin. That prideful feeling that you deserve more, that you deserve better, that resentful bitterness that the other person deserves less, that's sin, and it needs forgiven. The way you turn to food or TV or strolling social media, watching reel after reel after reel, To escape the realities of real life, the pressures, the difficulties, the stresses, instead of turning to God, that needs forgiven. Seeing that other person as an object, instead of seeing them as a person, that's sin, and it needs forgiven. Now maybe you know that all too well. Maybe all that seems like child's play to the things you've done. Maybe you know full well that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. You just wonder if God would really want to forgive you, why God would forgive you, if God really loves you. I mean, you know your story. You know that your sins, they've heaped up. There's too many of them, and they're too significant. They're too great. Why would God want to forgive you? After all, you can't even forgive yourself. Some of you, you've been trying for decades, trying to just find forgiveness by coming to church every week, by believing all the right things, doing all the right things, trying to be good enough. But you know it doesn't work that way. Some of you, it was just last night. And you're wrestling through. So friend, the first step in finding forgiveness is acknowledging that God wants to forgive you. I've got three kids and at different points, each one of those kids on multiple occasions has rifted relationship. But you know, my love for them goes far beyond any rift that could happen in our relationship. And most of the time, I'm the one who will take the first step to mend that relationship, even though I might be the offended one. Now, if I can love my kids that way, and I'm a sinful, broken man, I'm the one who sometimes rifts relationship as well. But if I can love my kids that way, how much more 
Does our perfect heavenly father love us? How much more so does he desire relationship with us? Does he delight in us having a right relationship with him? God desires to forgive you. God wants to forgive you. The question of the day, can God forgive you? Yes, that's exactly why Jesus came. Does God desire to forgive you? Yes, that's exactly why Jesus came. The apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, wrote these words. God is so rich in kindness. God is so rich in grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. God wants to forgive you. He wants to be in right relationship with you. He wants to remove the guilt, the shame, and the barrier of sin that stand between you and he. Now, for that to happen in the Bible, the response to that kind of forgiveness is always baptism. It's a surrendered life, a surrendered heart before God. Putting our old way to death and coming alive in a new way of living with God, following him. It's surrendering our old ways and following God in a new way of living. Friend, if you desire forgiveness, you need to stop running from God and just turn to him. That's really all it's about. You just turn to him and acknowledge you need him. And if you have never before done that, we invite you today to make this day the day you stop running and turn to God. If you need forgiveness in your life, those of you watching us online, you just let your host know, I'm ready and I need forgiveness. I'm ready to stop running. Those of you here, you meet us at the next step area in the lobby as you exit us to the right. After the service, you find us there and we will love to have a conversation with you to help you get right with God. You know, the paralyzed man found himself at the feet of Jesus, surrendered and helpless. And that is exactly where he discovered his greatest need. That his greatest need wasn't just to walk, but to walk with God. And Jesus has all the power to help a paralyzed man walk. But even more so, he has all the power to remove all the obstacles, all the barriers. He took the cross that we deserve so that we can walk with God. And that's a beautiful thing. Church, may we never forget that. And may we never forget that no matter how much suffering we might have in life, how bad our health might get, that suffering is never our greatest problem. Sin is. Sin is. And if sin is our greatest problem, then being forgiven of our sin is our greatest need. Needing to walk with God is our greatest need. Well, immediately after this story, Mark takes us back to the shores of the lake. Pardon me. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. Don't you love that Jesus is always teaching everywhere he goes? He's got a lesson for the people. Don't you wish you knew what he was teaching them there? What he was teaching when that man came through the roof of the house? Well, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, who's also called Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Now, tax collectors were not well-loved or even well-liked people. They had sided with the Romans who had taken over the Jewish people. They were oppressing them. And the tax collectors used their position to get rich at the expense of other people. And Jesus said to Levi, follow me and be my disciple. 
So Levi got up. I think he jumped up a lot like that paralyzed man. I think Levi had been paralyzed by his guilt, paralyzed by that position. He jumped up and he followed Jesus. And this is a bold decision because there's no going back for Levi. Once he leaves that tax collector booth, there are dozens of other sharks lined up ready to take his spot. Other people willing to trade their status with the other Jewish people to take advantage of those Jewish people to try and get ahead financially. And this is also a bold invitation from Jesus because it's not just an invitation for Levi to follow Jesus. It's also a declaration that says, Levi, you have not gone too far. See, for most people, Levi would have been seen as a traitor to the Jewish people and also as a traitor to God. So Jesus' invitation is a declaration that says, even though you have sold us out, that doesn't have to be the end of your story. There's still a future for you. There's still hope for you. You are not too far gone. There is a better future ahead if you will follow me. Well, Levi followed, and later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his house as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. There still are many people of that kind. Just look around. We're here. And it's a beautiful thing. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Have you ever felt like scum because of your sin? Why is Jesus having a sinner dinner? Why is he hanging out with these people? Well, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I love that in both of these accounts, there's a bold move to get friends into the presence of Jesus. Some guys carry their buddy on a mat. They dig through a ceiling. They dig through a roof to lower their buddy into Jesus. That's a bold move to get their buddy to the feet of Jesus. Another guy throws a party and invites all the people on the fringe to come hang out with the religious crowd, with Jesus and his buddies. Friend, what will you do to get your friends into the presence of God? How far will you go? When I was a junior in college, my roommate Rick and I, who had met through campus ministry, we lived in an apartment in the middle of Party Central at Illinois State University. We were surrounded by other party houses and sororities and fraternities. And every week from about Wednesday through Saturday, it was just party time. And so one night early on in that year... We had some friends over hanging out. There were parties going around everywhere. You could see the parties from our windows. And we were just chilling, but we were listening to some Christian music. Now, back then, we we had some good Christian music. It wasn't the stuff like the soccer mom stuff on the Christian radio. Sorry, y'all. But, like, it was, like, good music. It had, like, a beat to it. And some people stood up, and they started dancing. Rick and I looked at each other. and were like, yep. So a week later, we had big speakers that we had borrowed from the campus ministry. We had a uh, a fridge stocked full of soda because I wasn't even old enough to drink at that time. And we'd put all those ways behind us at that point. And we had invited everyone we knew from all the campus ministries at the college to come to our place for a dry party. And we had... Over a hundred people show up at our place. And so we had all these people that were like, you know, some of these people might be on the fringe. They might not know what's up. So we stopped the music at one point and we shared the gospel and then we shared our testimony. And we started doing that periodically throughout the night. And we started throwing these parties pretty regularly, every couple of weeks, sometimes every week. We had people in churches who were donating food and, and sodas and all this kind of stuff. The last time we threw one of those parties, 
we had bouncers at the stairways to our place making sure that all the other people who were coming from the other parties around were not bringing their booze upstairs. And we had clickers making sure we knew how many people were coming in. We had over 450 people come through our apartment on the last one of those that we did. They heard the gospel. They heard our testimony. And we were standing at different times throughout that year. We'd be standing in the student center in line to get food. And guys would say, hey, aren't you those dudes who throw that weird party and like talk about Jesus and don't serve any booze yet yeah that's us I mean you said something that was pretty cool can can we talk to you about God we started seeing people connect to the campus ministry and we started seeing people from that connect to God through that we got invitations from guys to come down to their party which was way different than the kind of parties we were throwing they had all that going on they invite us to come in and they stopped the music one dude got even pretty colorful with the crowd and made some threats if they did not quiet down and listen to what we had to say because it was pretty important. We shared the gospel. We shared our testimony. They were mostly drunk. I don't know if anybody heard us. We just prayed for seeds to land there, but we had some great conversations with people that night. And on the backside, we had people talking to us regularly and stopping by our apartment during the week to find out about Jesus. Now, church, I'm not saying that's the way you should do it. I'm not even saying that's the way we should have done it. I don't know. Maybe that was, maybe there were problems with that. I'm not saying you should open up your house and throw some kind of crazy Christian party at your house, but I'm not saying you shouldn't. How far will you go to help the people in your circle of influence get into the presence of God? You know, if you don't know that you need forgiven, if you don't think God can't forgive you, listen, all you need to do is look at the cross. The God who dies for you is a God who's for you because he loves you and he's made the path clear. He's taken away the obstacles. All you gotta do is turn to him. But church, let us never forget that we're in desperate need of forgiveness all the same. That's right where our story began too. Jesus didn't come for the religious, for the people who thought they had it all together. He came for the ones who knew they desperately needed a savior and his name is Jesus. And he came to give us life full and free and forever. That's why Jesus came. He came for the sinners. How far would you go to get your friends in the presence of God? Jesus went all the way to a cross. He went all the way to the grave. And for those of us who accepted that, we should celebrate that. We should be doing the happy dance on the way out every time we remember that. But we should also remember that because Jesus came for those who know they need a savior, he sends us just the same to those sinners. So let's never forfeit our mission. Church, let's always ask ourselves who our one is. Who's the one who needs us to carry them on a mat to the feet of Jesus? Who's the one who needs us to invite them to a sinner dinner that they might encounter Jesus and find forever forgiveness in him? Who's the one who is desperate to walk with God who needs us to help introduce them? Church, that's our mission. So may we go and may we live on mission. I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray. And then we're going to sing some more praise to our forever king. God, we thank you that you are the one who loves us, who forgives us, who has set us free. God, we thank you that you are the one who has the power to heal us of what ails us. And ultimately, to heal us of the sin disease that plagues us. God, may we never think that our greatest need is anything more than to be forgiven by you, to walk with you. God, that is our greatest need, to walk in fellowship with you. So may we live surrendered, not just once in the water of baptism, 
But daily, may we surrender to you. May we remember that we are people in need of forgiveness, but that you are a God who lavishes grace and forgiveness on us so freely, so beautifully. Father, give us courage to do whatever it takes to get our friends into the presence of you. And God, would you help them to surrender themselves to you? And we pray all this, that you might get the glory, the honor, the praise, and the worship that only you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.